that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Thanks for being with us today. I am joined by my partner in crime, the Italian American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Pat O'Boyle, and we are looking forward to a very important topic today and one that uh, so many of our listeners have asked us about and inquired about and one that we, frankly, have tried to find the right voice to bring on because it's a topic that I think in recent years, particularly in the past decade, and because of the work of today's guest, has really entered into a much greater role in the conversation about Italian history, Italian-American history, and uh, really global history, and one that deserves the right kind of expertise. You know, not something that Pat nor I or the other hosts are uh, experts in, and uh, so we wanted to find the right guest, and we're very lucky that we did, because uh, at an Italian-American event that Pat and I went to a few months ago, we were introduced through a mutual friend to Elizabeth Bettina Nicolosi. And uh, Elizabeth is the author of a very important 2011 work that really has changed the conversation on the topic that we're here to talk about today, which is the history of the Holocaust in Italy. And so her book, It Happened in Italy, Untold Stories of How the People of Italy Defied the Horrors of the Holocaust is one that many, many members of our community have read and have uh, really appreciated and have, have taken from and been driven by in their own research. So, Elizabeth, thank you for taking the time. I know you are a very, very busy lady at WABC 770 Radio, and you're, uh, you're giving us a good amount of time today, so I appreciate it. Welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, and... Um this is a topic that's important. Um, it was important when, at the time that it happened in World War II, it was important when I discovered pieces of it as a puzzle. And then in today's world, where there's so much hatred of the other, I think it's important to see that um, Italians at the time, when there was no time in history that hatred was more blatant, that Many Italians thought of Jews as Cristiani come noi, people, human beings, just like us. Yeah, yeah. You know, this topic, I, I know the backstory of how you came to it, but I'm looking forward to you sharing it with the audience. I can remember being a 16-year-old, and I got to join my dad on a business trip to Israel. And so we made a few extra days of it, and we did pilgrimage to all the holy sites and christened them there and uh, all of the fascinating historical archaeological sites and whatnot. And, of course, we made a trip to Yad Vashem, the uh, Israeli museum and learning center around the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And we were reading, I guess it's what they say, the righteous amongst nations, the, the, those who defended Jews during the Holocaust. And we were looking at the numbers of how many Jews were saved in each country that was occupied by the Nazis. And I think the, f- the number one was like the Netherlands or Denmark. And then number two, if I recall, was Italy in terms of the percentage of population. Right. Exactly. In terms of percentage of population, because that's the only way you can compare. Because Poland had over 3,300,000 Jews and 90% were murdered. 
Wow. Italy had approximately 40,000 Jews and 32,000 survived, which gives it an 80%, approximate 80% survival rate, where in Poland, it's a 90% murder rate. My goodness. Yeah, it blew my mind even as a 16-year-old because, you know, if you're a student of history like I've always been, and I know Pat has always been, when you learn about the Holocaust, there's so much weight that comes with it and so much sensitivity. But, you know, you you see Auschwitz and you see sites in Poland and, and Germany, but I don't think anybody really gets a sense in the American curriculum of Italy there in the midst of this as, you know, because we learned that Italy was fascist and an ally, but people don't realize that in 1943, Italy goes through its own civil war and the northern half is occupied by Germany and it's it's an occupied country as well. So the Holocaust hits there. So for me, it was mind-blowing that the Holocaust even occurred in Italy. And then to hear the stories of heroism that many, many Italians undertook to preserve the lives of their Jewish countrymen. Tell us how you came to this, because it's a very interesting story how you came to this topic. Well, um, I am Italian-American, 100%. My parents are first generation. My mom was born in Brooklyn, and my dad was born in the Bronx. And they moved to Long Island when I was three years old. I was born in Queens at Long Island Jewish Hospital, so starts there, okay? And they bought a house in a town called Jericho, and that is exit 41 on the Long Island Expressway. And right next to Jericho is Hicksville, where Billy Joel grew up. And Jericho, by the name, is, was a Jewish neighborhood, a predominantly Jewish. When I grew up, it was over 95% Jewish. Wow. And everybody I grew up with was Jewish. And there was no difference between us. My best friends, until I went to college, everybody's Jewish. Okay? And... I went to more bar and bat mitzvahs, lit candles, love matzo ball soup. They loved meatballs. I'd have people over to put up the Christmas tree and have strufoli. And to this day, when I get together with my childhood friends, they always remember the strufoli and want some. <laughs> How could you et not? Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> exactly. And I never felt different. They went to synagogue. We went to church. And we shared cultures. That was it. But I always knew the story. As a little kid, even before you go to school, you overhear people speaking. You know when you're little, when your parents have friends over and they send you to bed, but you don't really want to go to bed? And you sort of at the top of the steps in your footsie pajamas and you're listening? Sure. And you're hearing these stories and you, you think cause you've, you have to have heard this wrong. It's impossible that you heard it like this. That these people, parents, relatives, etc., were killed in concentration camps. They were burned in an oven. And you're thinking, people don't do that. I'm five, six, seven years old. This is like not true, right? I must have gotten this wrong. Well, as we all know, I didn't get it wrong. But I couldn't fathom that that was true until a little later on I learned. My neighbors across the street she grew up, she was born in a DP camp wow. um, after the war. Her parents were liberated from Dachau. And for the audience, it's not history nuts. A DP camp is a displaced persons camp. Uh, uh, this is 
after the war, when so many people are displaced, borders changed. There's decades of, of European history of people living in these camps, just to set the tone. Right. And thank you for filling that in. Um, so I learned, I knew people who were Holocaust survivors, some parents or grandparents of friends of mine. I had seen the numbers. And that's what I knew. When I was 10, my mom's mom took me back to her village in the Provincia di Salerno in a town called Campania in the Regione Campania. And it's spelled C-A-M-P-A-G-N-A. There was a huge colony of people from Campania who went to Chicago. That I don't know. Yeah, there was. They actually used to have a feast because Saint Saint Antoninus of Sorrento, Sant'Antonio di Sorrento, is also your patron. Right. So the patron saint of Sorrento and the whole Sorrento Peninsula was from the town of Campania, and actually wound up in Sorrento. That's two things that they share. They share in common. Wow. I never knew there were people on Long Island from Campania, the town of Campania. Yeah. I knew Chicago. Chicago had a big population. They had the statue, the feast. The I don't know if they had a. Um, a feast, I think they did. I, I I wouldn't guarantee they did, but I knew they definitely had a procession with the statue. And uh, that's like central Salerno. That's more like the Batipalia, that area. Exactly. Well, this is what I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You've got Naples. Then you go down and you get Salerno. And then you go in a little bit. And from Salerno, you've got a Batipalia, which has the best mozzarella di bufalo in that area. That's true. And then from Batipalia, another cinque kilometri, five or six kilometers, you get to Eboli. In Eboli, there's a famous book written by Carlo Levi, Christ Stopped at Eboli. There's even a movie about that. And for the listeners, it's also translated in English. And it was written in the 30s. And it's about Christianity, modern day world ending at Eboli, because when you go further in, it becomes much more rural and sort of backwards. Okay. So it's a very interesting point. So when I tell anybody about um, my grandma's town, I said, if you know about the book, Christ stopped at Eboli, my grandmother's town is five, six kilometers after Eboli. So that gives people a point of reference. I think that some people would take offense with the comment that they were that was a backward area. That was a poor area. As you leave that settler plain, the poverty increases, and it was an isolated area. That right. area was that's a very that's what I mean. That's what I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, some people wouldn't understand what, but I understand what you meant by that. It was a very yeah. It was a un, I would call underdeveloped area. It was very uh, yeah, underdeveloped, underdeveloped. Very underdeveloped. Very rural. Very agricultural. And poor, very poor. Very, very poor. poor. And that's why you had the immigration that we have from those areas. That's why there's such immigration from southern Italy, especially when you get off the coast, because the land was infertile. They, you know, it was, they left because it was a better option. And that's why we have so much immigration from southern Italy to other parts of the world, including the United States. And there was a lot of things, too, also um, that area, you know, other parts of the world, when the Industrial Revolution hit, that factories were able to pick up the surplus population who the farm work couldn't support. And that never took off in that area, because as you go into the mountains, the terrain is difficult. The terrain is horrible. Yes, the terrain is difficult. Right. It's a very rough terrain. And even when I was a kid, when I was there, water 
in that entire area would um, be closed at like one o'clock. They shut the running water supply in the town because there wasn't enough infrastructure just to have water running. Wow. So in the morning, you'd fill up the bottles of water and the pantola for the pasta, the pot for the pasta, and that's how you survived. And this is, you know, 30, 40 years after the war. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's a very different kind of place. So when I was a kid, my grandma took me to visit her parents. I was 10 years old. I didn't speak any Italian. I knew how to count to 10. If I got to 11, I was completely lost. I knew Comitichiami, and I knew how to send me Camo Elizabeth, okay? And I knew the word basta because they kept wanting to feed you lots, and I say basta. And I learned how to live without running water in the afternoons. Me, who grew up on Long Island with three fully, you know, running bathrooms at all times on dishwasher and refrigerators and there was very little refrigeration and it was very rural even in the 70s and 80s. So imagine in World War II and my great grandparents were alive at the time and my great grandfather, like the classic, the older gentleman with the cappellino, with the hat, with the jacca and the cravata, the jacket and the tie, and there was always a loaded shotgun running around in these rural areas. There was always a rabbit to get or something. And I always knew the story that during World War II, qualche ebreo è stato salvato qui. Qualche ebreo. Some Jews were saved here. Now, I had been up to visit some relatives in Milan. So I knew how long it took to get from Milan down to Campania. And if all went well, it was a 12 to 15 hour trip, whether you took a train or a car, okay? And with no traffic, 12 to 15 hours. And Campania is in the valley of these mountains. So there you, you go in this winding road, winding road, you look like you're going to nothing. Then it sort of opens up and the mountains sort of protect the walls for the town and the town is in the valley. So in my head as a 10, 12 year old, when I would go every summer, I'd say, how did these people from Germany get down to Campania in a war with no transportation? How did they find this little town to go hide in? And the way it was described to me, it sounded like a couple of Anne Frank's families. Cera qualche ebreo. If I say to you qualche ebreo, a few Jews or a few people, give me a number. Yeah, a dozen. Right, a dozen, massimo, but it was more than a dozen. The Italians would go, ah, c'erano cinquanta, no centinaio, you know, they'd expand it. So I'm like, okay, how did they find this place? Today, with the GPS in 2022, you still have a difficult time finding companions, all right? Just, just saying. So that's what I basically knew, and I knew my great-grandfather had hid some people in the land, our farmland when the Germans came. That's what I knew. Fast forward, I went to Italy every summer when I was 10 to 18, and I spent three months a year there. So I was a real Italian child in my formative years, three months a year. I learned Napolitano first. I always knew Wagliona, Wagliotta. I never knew the word ragazzo, ragazza. You know, Yamancina Mo has, has nothing to do on Yamo Adesso. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew nothing about Italian. And I learned Proprio Campagnese and Napolitano. I per- spoke it perfectly. I had no idea what Italian was until later on in school. 
And then I lived in Florence. So my form of years from 10 to 18, three months a year. Now we all know that Italian ladies outside of the balcony, looking out the window, they're the best yentas God ever created. Especially, you, know, you don't need Facebook in a little town in, in Italy. Everybody knows everything. And they know it from going backwards for centuries. And I, nobody ever talked about this. Nobody talked about this. So one night, many years later, now the tide has turned. My grandmother used to take me to Italy. And then the tide turns and you start taking grandma back to Italy. You're the one with the passport. You're the one with the ticket. And it was after 9-11. She hadn't been for a few years. Neither had I, about three or four years. And she was 89 and a half. She added the half back in. They, they do that. She said, I'm 89 and a half. I'm like, okay. And I said, nah, let's go back. You know, let's go. She was in good shape. And we went. And one night, having a pizza in this wonderful little restaurant that is owned by a cousin. You know, everybody's a cousin in these little towns. He showed me a book. Yebrei. It's also La Seconda Guerra Mondiale Campagna, and it was a senior thesis put together by this wonderful man named Gianluca Petroni. And he had put together this book about what happened in Campania, and the book had pictures in it. And I saw this picture of an Orthodox rabbi right out of central casting. Steven Spielberg would have him as an extra exactly what you expect an Orthodox rabbi to look like, standing next to a priest who's a bishop with police officers, no guns drawn, with other people dressed in suits and ties, flowers, on the steps of a church. Now, these little towns in Italy, we all know, have various churches, lots of churches, right? Sure. It turns out to be my church, my parochia. My grandmother's church, where she was baptized and married, which is 100, 150 feet from my portone up in my great-grandparents' town, where I would play jacks, because it's the only place there was a little space that I could go. And outside of the church, there was a fontana for the water. And when we ran out of water, they'd send me with the bucket to go get water. Okay? So... Next to this church is attached what? A convent. And here's these pictures of these Jews on the steps of this church, dressed in better clothes than you see anybody walking around today in you know, midtown Manhattan. No Star of David, no J, no armbands. If you didn't know, because the writing with those pictures told you who they were, you'd have no clue just looking at these pictures who these people were. And I'm sitting there going, are you for real? All these years later, you never told me? Qualche Breo turned out to be a thousand in Campania over three years. Wow. From 1940 to the armistice, September 8th, 1943. What it was, was that Mussolini had taken over some places to put foreign Jews into concentration camps. Now, immediately, when you hear the word concentration camp, what do you think? You think of death camps. Mm-hmm. Work camps. Yep. What do the, the people look like? 
emaciated uh, prisoners, you know. What are they wearing? Prison garb with the Star of David. Ragged prison garb. The striped pajamas, the whole yeah. thing, right. Yeah. Not happening here, okay? So something can be called whatever you want to call it, be it a concentration camp, and I'm putting that in air quotes, concentration camp, but it's how you implement it. So an Italian concentration camp, and all the documents call them concentration camps, Campo di Concentramento, has nothing to do with Auschwitz and Dachau. And my book starts with someone who liberated Dachau, an American soldier that I met outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And it's also the next chapter is a woman who was in Auschwitz. So it starts with Dachau and Auschwitz and how they compare what they saw because they were there. He liberated Dachau. And when I showed him the pictures that I was shown, he said, this doesn't look like anything I saw when I liberated Dachau. It looks like people in my hometown of Franklin, Tennessee, mm. okay? And Edith Burns, who was in Auschwitz, said, my husband, who was in Italy, who was also in my grandmother's village, but I unfortunately did not meet him because he had passed away before I met up with them, with her. She would say to him, Fred, you had a picnic in Italy compared to me in Auschwitz. That's how the book starts. And um, at the time, I didn't know I was going to write a book. I just was in Italy that night. This man gave me this book. I was leaving the next day. There are many pictures in this book, including other people on the steps. The police officers have their hands on their knees. You don't see a gun. You see nothing. There's even a picture of my great-grandfather with um, a Jewish woman in this book. It's incredible. There's a list of about 250 names from September 1940, and they're all foreign Jewish names. They're not Italian Jewish names. They're, as a friend of mine that I grew up in Jericho, she said it's like our phone book of Jericho. It's like our high school last name. That's an important distinction, too, because Italy had, uh, yeah, Italy's got an ancient Jewish history. I mean, uh, as far back as the Roman period, right? But by the Second World War, there was still a sizable Jewish population that lived in Italy. So we're not talking about even indigenous Italian Jews. We're talking about no. foreign Jews being rescued from other places. So that's also important distinction, you know? It's, it's very important. Um, what had happened was you had the Italian um, Jewish population, which existed before Christianity, because they were there before Christ. Yeah, They've been there good, forever. Good yeah. And they were assimilated and they, there was no difference. And they, they, they just were, they lived amongst people. And again, you make people may still, yes, but there were ghettos in Venice and there were ghettos in Rome. That is true, but that is a different era. You have to compare what was going on in the 1930s and 1940s. It has nothing to do with what happened 300 years before, 500 years before, 1,000 years before. There was no forced ghetto that didn't exist, okay? Yeah, and, and that's also, it's also important for people to distinguish the word ghetto comes from the Venetian language, and mm -hmm. it, it means a sequestered place. It's a restricted neighborhood. So, yeah, there were certainly prior, I mean, this is centuries before 
Italian unification in some cases. But yeah, there were there were restrictions on where non-Catholics could live, but it was not in any way the term that we think of today in terms of a downtrodden place economically abandoned by the central state. These were just sections of the city. I mean, Rome still refers to the ghetto neighborhood, right. and that doesn't mean it's a, it's not a bad word in that sense. It was a, a thriving, yeah. functioning neighborhood integrated into the rest of the city. It was just restrictions on where people lived based on their religious backgrounds, which was normal to those people at the time, for better or worse. And, you know, that's something we have to, we have to think about when we talk about this. Absolutely. So to go back and give a, a little bit of history, the Italian Jews lived amongst Italians. It was all, everybody's for the most part, got along, etc. In 1938, you have Kristallnacht in Germany, the night of the broken glass, November 9th, 1938. And that's when historians will say that the Holocaust began. That's when in mass, um, German Jews get arrested. They get taken to camps. At the time, they were not death camps. They were just concentration camps to keep people out of the general population. They were not the worker death camps that they became in 1938. Many um, Jews in other parts of Europe knew that they it was time to maybe leave if they could. But you can't leave pretty easily if you don't have what? A visa. Doesn't work. For some reason, even though Italy was allied with Hitler and Mussolini was allied with Hitler, they allowed foreign Jews to get into Italy. Okay, now that did happen. And people ask me why, and I've never been able to explain why. Okay, because there is no explanation. It's Italy. And it's also um, important for people to understand how integral Jewish Italians were to the founding of fascism, too. I mean, there's, oh, absolutely. There's so many high ranking fascists of Jewish origin from the beginning of fascism in the in 1919 in the post-war post-world war one era until the beginning of a lot of these racial laws that come in the late 30s uh, in as the alliance with hitler grows but it, it's you know there's no excuse for these racial laws that do come but the point being this is not a country with a history of institutional anti-semitism no and especially not at that era so italy implements the racial laws similar to the rules that happen in in um, Germany, so it means that Jewish children can't go to public school. If you owned a business in Italy as a Jewish person, you had to um, give it up. If you were a professor you or a government worker, you lost your job, okay? This is all wrong. So to clarify for everybody listening, this is not to glorify what happened in Italy at that time by any means. In the entire framework is everything that happened during that era is wrong. But according to the people that I met, that I interviewed, and there are hundreds, many more than, than are in the book, because the book was one snapshot, and then after the book was published, so many more people got in touch with me, that they say they're grateful that they were in Italy because they know that had they not gotten there, they wouldn't be alive. And that under the circumstances at the time, they were treated well, and in many cases with dignity and respect. Does not mean every Italian was like that. 80% survived, which means 20% did not. The 20% had the misfortune of being 
at the wrong place at the wrong time or being actively turned in by people. So uh, there are bad people in Italy at that time that are Italians who are collaborating. Yeah. But more people did not because you did not survive unless someone actively tried to help you. And that's, those are the words for the survivors. So going back to what was happening in 38, according to a woman in Rome, who is a medical doctor, she was a teenager at the time. She said, until 1943, we were discriminated against. We were humiliated, but it wasn't the persecution that we suffered after September 8th, 1943. She was a Roman Jew. So the, the Jews in Italy, the Italian Jews were able to stay in their own homes. They lived in their own homes. They had the same life that they had before with restrictions. So Italian Jewish children couldn't go to public schools. They formed their own schools. Um, one woman said, my father had this electronic business in the Milan, Torino area, and he gave it to his workers. There was no paper trail, because if there's a paper trail, everybody gets in trouble. Yeah. He gave the business to the workers. After the war, the workers gave the business back. Wow. Another gentleman said, you know, they had to leave their home and they gave it to, you know, friends, Catholic friends. And every single item, every fork, every painting, every everything was still there when they got home. That is not the case for everybody. Some people lost everything. Yeah. So there is no absolute. There's it just tends to skew more were helpful than more were evil. Okay. So the Italian Jews lived amongst them in their own apartments, whatever, until September 8th, 1943, when the armistice occurs. And that's when everybody who's Jewish, whether you're a foreign Jew or an Italian Jew, your life is at risk. According to historians, of which I'm not, I am just someone who told stories from people, firsthand experience, their words backed up by documents and photographs. In addition, something went really right for you if you're 90 years old and you're living in Long Beach, as opposed to, you know, not making it past 20, okay, like some of your relatives. So these people said, while we were under Mussolini, there were no mass deportations. No, there were no mass deportations. They say it is witnesses history and historians will tell you that there were no mass deportations. It's only when Italy switches sides on September 8th, 1943, that everybody is at risk. And as that wonderful woman in Rome said, that's when true persecution where you feel your life is at risk. Before you were humiliated, you couldn't go to school, you had restrictions, but you never felt your life was at risk. And case in point in the documentary that happened after the book, which was inspired by the book, which um, John, your dad generously contributed to, um, one of the people who winds up in Auschwitz, he's a Roman Jew. It was after September 8th, 1943, it was in October. He was online for a ration of cigarettes. 
when his father came to get him and said, we have to go into hiding. And then that night or the next night, then they were taken away to Auschwitz and he's the only one of his family who survived. But they didn't go into hiding right away. Yeah. The foreign Jews knew that when the Germans were going to be in control, they had knew what they were doing and how bad they were, that they started going to hiding right away. And in Italy, people, they just never thought that this would happen to them. And um, then it all went really south after, you know, September 8th, 1943. But until then, what happened with the foreign Jews is they were put into these concentration camps, the largest thing in Campania, my grandmother's village. And in, in a village. The bigger one is in Ferramonti in Calabria, 20 minutes north of Cosenza, where they actually built barracks. And there were 92 barracks, 92 baracche, and there were anywhere between 2,000 and 4,000 people, depending on the year and the month. And again, this was m mostly for foreign Jews. In my grandma's village in the convent, imagine when I turn the picture in this book that night and I see something. The nuns were gone. It's 1940. Nuns were gone. These foreign Jews were um, sent to these camps and they were allowed to build a synagogue in their concentration camp, which was a former convent attached to an active church. Wow. Wow. Imagine that. Yeah, but that, that's, you know, that's the profound impact of unfurling and, and revealing these stories, right? Like, as I've learned more about this, you know, I was 11 years younger when your book came out, and it was quickly added to my collection, and I've interacted with a lot of other academics around this topic. And I will say, not because you're on, but I think you did a lot to help make this topic one that has been discussed. Um, I remember reading stories like Gino Bartoli, who was the sort of Michael Jordan of his time in Italy, right? This world-renowned right. cyclist who mm -hmm. was actively engaged in, in ferrying false documents in his bike and fighting uh, for the protection of Jews, really, a, a, you know, a great danger to himself and his with such a notable status. I love to find these personal stories of courage and, and heart and human compassion. In all of your research, do you have a favorite story that you came across? Yeah. Um, my, uh, well, two things. The first was meeting Mr. Wolf. Um, and he said, you know, he'd love to go back to Italy and he hadn't been since the seventies. And I had met him at a, um, a lecture at St. John's and my mouth just blurted out. I'll, you know, I'll have you, I'll figure out and get, you know, have you go back there. But imagine my surprise when he was talking about being in a concentration camp and it turned out to be in my grandma's village. I mean, what are the chances of that? I just sat there, I dumbfounded. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to get him back. And I went to the Italian consulate and I said, can you help me, you know, with the Italian tourism board, get a trip sponsored. And one thing led to another and I thought I was done. I thought it was just a nice thing to do to bring him back to Italy. I thought it was sweet. I never had an intent to write a book. I never had an intent from the book to 
make a documentary of which Gina Bartoli is an active piece of the documentary. Okay. So that's quite amazing. And, um, and for your, the listeners, Gina Bartoli for Italians is like a combination of Babe Ruth and whoever your favorite sports person is. Okay. Yeah. It's a combination of all the world into one. That's what Gina Bartoli was to people at the time. Um, and he won the Tour de France twice. So meeting Mr. Wolf was the catalyst and he had so many documents and pictures and he was in different parts of Italy and helped by priests and nuns. And as a result, one day I just got this crazy idea that he was a German Jew and he had been in Dachau and got out of Dachau. So he has a lot of stories. And he said, when he was sent to Campania, he's like, okay, great. You know, why, why am I, you know, going to another concentration camp. I should have stayed in Germany when the silly business would have gone away. Um, he was able to get out of Dachau because in 38, they would, they just wanted Jews to leave Germany. And he and his brother um, were able to get out of um, their respective camps, Dachau and Buchenwald, because they were supposed to go to Yeshiva in Chicago, because I'm bringing back the Chicago thing. And they went to the embassy in Germany and they did not get a visa. So they had, they went to Italy because six months was ticking and they got to Italy and then ultimately wound up um, in Campania. And then his brother and mother were in Ferramonti in Calabria. And the Italians were able to make a domanda, a request. And many times you were reunited with your family, very different from what happened in German concentration camps, German-run concentration camps. If you arrived, you were separated from your family, and you probably never saw them again. So Mr. Wolf was an incredible inspiration, and um, I had no idea that the journey would continue. And I had gone to a bar mitzvah in Nashville, of all things, okay, Nashville. And that's his bar mitzvah. I was talking to some woman and she said, you need to meet my friend, Ava Rosenfeld. She was in Italy too. So she called her the next day. I went to her home and she wanted me to come to her home because she had documents. Now, this is very important. All these people had documents and photographs. Who do you know that left Auschwitz that had documents and photographs? Nobody. They were lucky if they were alive. These people had documents and photographs. It's funny, I just read an article in, um, I think it was the Smithsonian or National Geographic somewhere, about a woman in New York who, on a whim, an artist at, at age like 19 at a flea market, bought a box of photographs and drawings and notes and uh, j- just randomly for art, put it away at age 19, left it in her childhood bedroom, reopened it now, all these years later at like 55, and found that it was the the writings and notes and drawings and photos of a Jewish family, uh, one survivor from, I, I don't know if it was Auschwitz or Dachau, and was able through the <sighs> glories of the internet to reunite the family with this stuff. It's now in um, one of the Holocaust museums, I think in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, such, it's considered this amazing trove because like you say, there is not much that comes out. And, I mean, there's not, there's, there's not many people that survive this, let alone physical material history. And so it's, uh, it's a wealth to have and obviously impacts your book greatly. So this is exactly sort of what happens to, to me in this story of reuniting people. So what happens is I go to her apartment, her, apartment, her home, beautiful home. 
she, her husband was also a Holocaust survivor, et cetera. I, I'm very good friends with her children and her family now, et cetera. And she says, I was with another family and the father was in your grandmother's village, if I'm not mistaken. So I happen to have this book from Gianluca Petroni and I go and look at the this list. Now remember, the list is only for one day in September 1940. I know other people who were there, but they're not on that list. So his his name was Max Kleinman. So I go and I look and I say, let's see if he's on this list. Sure enough, he's on the list. I'm like, jackpot, yes. Then I look at the year he was born, which made him like 98 at the time. And I'm thinking, wow. okay, he's 98. And she must have read the bubble over my head that he's probably no longer with us. And so she says, no, he's still alive and okay. And I'm in Nashville. And I'm thinking, I'm changing my ticket. This was a Sunday. Okay, I'm changing my ticket. Wherever this guy is, you know, the clock is ticking. I'm going to change my ticket and go find him. Yeah. I don't care where in the United States is. I'm not going back to New York. So she says to me, he lives in New York. He lives in Flushing. Wow. What are the odds of that? <laughs> my grandmother lived a mile from her house. His house. She lived in Flushing. Wow. He was a medical doctor, a doctor in Flushing. We call his son, Walter. Walter lives in Huntington. Okay. It's Sunday afternoon. I call Vince Mamarale, my partner in crime in this whole you know, escapade. He's a retired history professor that knows more about the Holocaust than anybody you know. And I don't mean Italy in the Holocaust. You name a document that was signed somewhere, he'll tell you who signed it and what color pen. Okay. He is the walking encyclopedia of Holocaust knowledge. He's extraordinary and better than anyone I've met who's, you know, a historian, et cetera. So anyway, long and short of this, we call Walter. I said, I'm coming back on Tuesday. And I said, I want to meet your dad. And Wednesday afternoon, I was four o'clock. I was in Walter Kleinman's father, Max Kleinman's house. And he said a mile from my grandmother's house. Wow. He was in Campania, a hundred feet from my grandmother's house. I have a picture of him in my, in, in the archway of the convent. Okay. I have a picture of him and documents. And he said, you walk in, he goes, now you come? Now you come? Imagine. All these years later, I said, some of us had to be born and grow up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, story. You're living through history that you didn't live through, you know? You're living I through didn't know. Era. Yeah. And he had suitcases of documents, photographs, etc. His wife, unfortunately, passed away a, a couple of years before. Long and short of it is, I'm just amazed. Walter was born in Potenza. I want you to think about this. Walter Kleinman is born in Potenza. Yeah. Potenza is about an hour south of Campania. He's born in Potenza in 1941. How amazing is that? Okay. Wow. Over the years, I arranged for four trips to go back to Italy. So people could go back and meet their rescuers Many of these people had their rescuers on it, but Yad Vashem is among righteous among nations. We went to Fedamonti. At Fedamonti, there were weddings, by the way, for those of you listening. Imagine people getting married in a concentration camp. 21 babies were born in Fedamonti. Okay, so there's beautiful pictures of weddings with barracks in the background. That did not happen in Dachau, Auschwitz. No. 
No, it did not. We are in Campania. And after coming back from Fedamonti, we're about ready to have dinner. I come, went up to my room to get something, come back down, and there's Ruth coming to get me. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. What? Come here. Come here. And I'm looking. And there's an Italian man with his wife and daughter. And he's hugging Walter. Walter is tall, blondish, balding, 6'2", and Rocco is an Italian man, stocky, etc. I can't believe I'm even getting emotional about this. And um, he says, Questa mio fratello di latte. This is my milk brother. I'm like, what's a fratello di latte? What is this? And I'm, I'm piecing the words together. They shared a nurse, probably. They were nurses. I know, but at, at that very moment, my head is like, I, I have just 15 people all crying. I don't know what's going on. Rocco's mother was Walter's milk mother, wet nurse. Yeah. Because Walter's mother didn't have enough milk, and I knew that story. Wow. And what had happened was, when we were in Potenza, we had a meeting with the mayor of the town and documenti and whatever. And there's a whole other story about that, but we were filmed on sort of like New York one, uh, you know, local TV. And Rocco had fallen asleep on the couch, watching a partita di, di calcio, watching soccer. And he happened to wake up just as this segment came on and he jumps up. It's like midnight screaming in the house. His wife and daughter are asleep. They think he's having a heart attack. They have no idea what's going on. And he starts calling all the hotels. No one knows. You know, they're not, we're not in Potenza. He calls the mayor's office the next day. He says, no, they're in Campania. Thank goodness we had not already decamped for Rome, which was happening the next day. And so he, when he was doing all this research, we were in Fedamonti, two hours, three hours south of Campania, gone down there for the day. And when we got back, he shows up at the hotel. Not only that, but he has pictures of baby Walter and his parents that he kept all those years with letters from Walter's mother from New York with the aerograms. Remember those aerograms? Sure, yeah. Thanking her for helping save her babies, okay? Sharing her milk. Wow. I cannot tell you what that was like. You couldn't make this up in my wildest dreams to make it up. They become great friends. They share Christmas together that next that year. Walter goes back three months later. They, they've been in touch. Unfortunately, Rocco has since passed. But um, Walter and Elaine are still very much in touch with the families. And over the years, I also have seen them. I had gone back. Um, so if you ask me what my favorite story is, it's probably that one because mother's milk is basic to every single human being on the planet. Yeah. And I'm trying to imagine a baby Walter Kleiman being nursed in a Nazi run environment. So that shows the humanity. And there was not only one wet nurse, there was another woman. And she, because of that story being published in a paper in Italy, Another woman came out, again, with pictures and documents, and Walter got to meet her, and I also got to meet her. She was still alive, and she lived in Rome. And someone asked her, why did you do this? And she very defiantly in her you know, late 80s, early 90s said, 
I gave my breast milk to whoever I wanted. It was my milk. I would give it to who I wanted. And I think that's the beauty of this story that the Italians, many of them, thought of them as Cristiani, Cominoi, people like us. And um, in addition, I was able to arrange for these people, these German Jews to meet with Pope Benedict. Because wow. I thought that would be a sort of interesting thing. He was a German at the same time, alive at the same time as these people. They shared a common history. And then I was able to have um, some rescuers meet Pope Francis. And these, Mercedes Virgili is at Yad Vashem. So um, many of the people in my book were um, the rescuers were honored at Yad Vashem, the same with the people in the wonderful documentary that so many wonderful Italian Americans helped contribute to, such as um, your dad, uh, Vinnie Viola, and Joe Perello, who was the lead in this, and Ken Langone, and Mary Gabelli, Maria Bartiromo, uh, Rocco Camiso, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a story that all Italians should know, Italian-Americans, because they don't know about the goodness and it's pure evil. And I think it's important to know about this piece of our history and it should be spoken about at um, meals and holidays and know this as much as we know the other parts of our history, the good and the bad, and maybe learn from it that the other is not bad they're just different yeah and i sign all my books if you're not indifferent things can be different and that's really true yeah absolutely and you've dedicated so much of your life you know i know you founded the be the difference never again organization uh an international program about learning about individuals who've helped others and inspiring people to to do the same and you know the, the humanity is what comes out of this story and it's obvious in this conversation how much that humanity has impacted you and your own humanity has impacted your mission to retell this and I'm very proud to know that Italian Americans in general have taken so actively to support your work and getting this documentary created I'm, I'm very proud to have my own family included on that list that means a lot and you know this is a contribution we can make to a very important dialogue especially nowadays as so many of these survivors are passing on and you know we encounter denialism around the Holocaust in, in political circles in a lot of places. And it's just a dangerous time to forget something that, you know, for those of us who grew up in a certain time, we did encounter survivors. And, you know, I remember them coming to my school as a kid. And yeah. we're not going to have people who survived the Holocaust, the Second World War, any of these things for that much longer. No. So it becomes the responsibility of people like us to tell these stories and make sure that they don't leave the popular dialogue. And you've done an amazing service there. And as Ali Vazel said, you know, when you, you, you see a witness and hear a witness, you become a witness. And um, I thank you so much, all of you, for this time to tell this story. I am, it's um, very meaningful to me. And I very, I, it's very important that I take this and everybody that worked on this very seriously because we're very honored to tell these people's stories it's a big responsibility to tell their stories and tell it right and tell it straight. And if you look at the back of the book, they all wrote a piece 
about it and every word I made sure that they all looked at and made sure it was a hundred percent accurate and they signed off on it. And then when the book came out and the, the paperback version has so many quotes of other people who came out of the woodwork and said, thank you for writing the book. It was my story too. And one of the reasons you didn't hear much about this is most of them said, I didn't suffer enough. Survivor guilt. Yeah. I didn't suffer. In Italy, I didn't suffer compared to the other stories we all know. And they felt that they really didn't have a story to tell or it wasn't, you know, they felt they lived okay compared, as Edith Burns said, my husband had a picnic compared to me. And she came with us to Fedamonti and she saw our actual picnic table. So she said, see, I told him he was having a picnic. <laughs> and in Fedamonti, they had tables with tablecloths, wine, and flowers on that. Okay. Wow. So that is accurate. And they trusted us. And that's an important thing. They trusted me. They trusted Mintz to make sure we said it right. And it's an honor to tell this story. And they, they didn't come forth until many years later because they finally felt they weren't doing the Italians justice that risked their lives to save theirs and they weren't getting acknowledged. And that's from the survivors. You've certainly done a great job of not only acknowledging the survivor stories, but also the stories of those Italians who were active in their protection. And I say many, many episodes, I think the strength of being Italian or Italian-American is with all the good and bad that comes with it, we oftentimes are really good at being human and uh, nothing more human than lending yourself and risking yourself for your fellow man. I think that's absolutely the most noble thing you can do. And so there's so much nobility tied up in this, this work, the book, the documentary, I highly encourage everybody to go out and get it. It's available uh, on our show page. We'll link to the book and the documentary. And uh, I just appreciate you taking the time to be with us this week. I know you've given us a lot of valuable time. Thank you. And maybe with all the anti-Semitism that's growing around the world, this could be a lesson to all that in the worst time of history of anti-Semitism, there was some goodness and maybe we can learn and teach people that there's no reason for anti-Semitism whatsoever. Where's your book available? Um, it's Barnes & Noble, Amazon. The documentary is called My Italian Secret, and it is available on Amazon Prime. So that's where you can people, get it. And if, if I may, you need to go out. I know I keep plugging. We have people come on, and I plug every book that comes on because we curate those books that come on the podcast. And Italian-Americans, I think that the one thing that comes out of the story, because I had been familiar with the, the camps that have been in Campania, is that there's a, there's a sense of uh, humanity in Italy that's intrinsic to the people. And I think that the work that you've done really puts a spotlight on that. Yeah. Thank you. And I think that the excellent, you know, people, Italy's famous for your know, food, music, the, the same Gonzona, we hear about everything, music and paintings, and we were great at all that stuff, literature. But the real strength of Italy is the humanity of the people. Yeah. And I think that this, the work that you did really brings to life. And I think Italy's really good at making uh, lemonade out of lemons, you know, lemons. Limoncello. But I think that um, it really shows that, you know, Italy was put in a horrible situation in World War II, the Italian people. They got sold a bill of goods they never saw coming. 
and they got involved in the, the Holocaust, which was so antithetical to who they were as people. And, you know, with the amount of people who survived the camps in Campania, uh, just goes to show that the Italians, and I think especially in Campania, the uh, Aranjama, you know, we're going to make it kind of work type of mentality of somehow we'll get around this. Exactly. You know, if I was going to be stuck in that situation, Campania is the region I might want to be in. Not to keep tooting the horn, but, you know, you got that intrinsic sense of, um, you know, Campania is always spun as scammers, but sometimes a scam is not a bad thing to do in the sense that they were able to, because I know, we, you know, we have such a limited amount of time on this. We could do a whole series on this for the podcast, but, you know, they were, if I'm correct, the people of Campania, the town, were really good about keeping the Germans out of their hair. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's, I, I would love, if you could do some of those stories, I would love for you to come back on about that. I would love to come back on and tell you that, but I also want your uh, listeners to go away with it. wasn't just Campania. It was the whole boot of Italy, the entire boot from Milan, Florence, Rome, etc. It was the whole boot of Italy. And there's so much more to tell about this that um, maybe we should do a second one. What but, I was saying about Campania as a region was we were good at conniving the situation. Oh, absolutely. That's you, why those, okay. <laughs> that, that's what I'm getting at. You need people they, from Campania to connive to Germans. Let me tell you what they you did, know. okay? When the Germans came to look for the Jews in the, in the camp, you know, in, in Campania, they said, knowing the Germans wanted everything precise, the documents and the, the, you know, the whatever, they said, come back tomorrow. We'll have all the documenti, you know, in order for you. And the next day they came to pick up these Jews, thinking that the Italians were going to, like, behave. <laughs> And there was like, they, they were transferred, you know, destination sconosciuto. They had sent them out in the mountains in the back. There's a special, there was a window that goes into the mountains and they went into the caves. And part two of this is Campania was bombed on September 17th. And the Jews came down from the mountains to help these people because many were doctors. Wow. Okay. Wow. They came down to help them because 200 citizens were bombed by allies. That's a whole other story. So there was fraternity that way. And there's pictures in Life magazine in November 1943 of what happened. So there's so much more. But people should go to this village. It's a stone's throw from the Costiera Malpitana, from Pestum, from Salerno. It's a half hour. There's a little museum in this convent now that's open you need to make an appuntamento but you can see this you can see the rooms that they were able to have their own clothes you know a real bed with blankets their own bed uh, and the synagogue imagine a synagogue in a convent where they made masks for the pasqua Breca, the jewish easter passover imagine that so I thank you so much. And if you, you know, I'd be delighted to tell more stories because there's so many of goodness. So much evil. Yeah, I want, I, I love the tricky stories. The which? The ones the tricks they used to play on the Germans. Like letting them out oh, and oh. changing papers. And because they, the, the Southern oh, Italians, I have about. That's what you, you got to come back. You I'll come back and back tell you this. There's stuff in stories. Rome. There's stuff in Rome. There's stuff all over the boot. I got tons of those for you. <laughs> That's everything that's right. Somebody said to me the other day, we're talking about the Italian, uh, the Italian reputation as uh, 
a poor military reputation and surrendering. And the, and the, a friend of mine up in Arthur Avenue and I were talking about it and he said, people don't understand. We've got it all figured out, we Italians. We surrender first, and then the battle begins. And he was absolutely <laughs> right. It was like this all occurred after the Italian military surrender, and and that's when the people. And they were always a well-dressed military. Was <laughs> that yes, Italian naval ship that was being sunk by the English? It had like a slow sinking, and the captain went on put on his dress uniform, so that when the I British know, captured him, he'd be like dressed to the nines. They always a well-dressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's what that's why sure. it's our tribe. But they fought after the surrender for these people that were their neighbors and, and their, their charge. I've said that they, constantly. Italians do not fight for governments because they don't believe in trust in governments. Yep. Oh, that's a whole other conversation. Absolutely. But if they love you, they'll kill for you. They'll kill for their family. Absolutely. That's why I absolutely. said if Italy made an army, if you invade the village, they'll kill to defend the village. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Because that's their people. And I think that's why, yes, yes, you know, the the the, the cowardice that's, that's imputed on them is unfair because... They are at their best when things are at its worst and they defend their own people and the people they know. And that's and and uh, and the people, you know, they build bonds, not just of of consanguinity and blood, but also of relationships. And I think that that, you know, the fact that these Jewish people who were from places that they, they, they had never heard of Uganda had come to the south of Italy and they defended them. Yep. You're absolutely right. They risked their lives because, I mean, you know, we make all jokes about playing jokes on and, and scamming the, the German occupiers. But Germany did horrific war crimes in Italy to people who try to fight their occupation. Oh, absolutely. So if, if the Germans had had the wrong commander and he had figured out what was going on in Campania, that entire town would have been massacred. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. All of Italy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I gave a more, you know, a, a version of that just tells the story, but the, some of the details are pretty evil. Okay. So it was not a picnic by any means for the Italians who risked their lives to do so. And there's much more the, if you, we should even discuss the documentary the next time, because a lot of the stories that you'd want to know more about and how the Italians connived and did stuff, it's, it's in the documentary and been shown there. Um, and so many more have come out even since the documentary. It's amazing. So thank you all so much. Yeah, we'd be happy to do it. We'd be happy to have you back. And, uh, I hope everybody really appreciated this wonderful conversation with a fantastic Italian-American. And add this to your Italian folklore. You're not kidding. Add this to your Italian folklore. And it's our job to promote and uh, and keep this alive. And it's I, I've seen the book everywhere I go, every bookstore. It's still on the shelf 11 years later. That's how high in demand it is. So not hard for you to get your hands on. We highly recommend it. We hope you've enjoyed this. And it's been as impactful as it's been for us. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Life will be great.